Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Hello and welcome, or welcome back to Single Malt History, where today we have a treat in being joined by two experts in their fields. Before we get to the new book on Winston Churchill and his record as a military leader, Is It Everything It Was Cracked Up To Be?, I am delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague Siobhan O'Shaughnessy, founder and CEO of Clio. This is a shameless plug because I've been thrilled, especially the historical geek part of me, to partner with Clio to create two new candles for 2023, which are on sale now. And we are very excited to say that CNN has just named these candles one of their must-have holiday gifts for 2023. My current collaboration with Clio, with my candles, are Catherine Howard and Christmas at the Palace, both inspired by events in two of my books. I have to say I lost my mind a little bit with joy when I saw the final product. I wanted to talk to you all about how we picked them and how Siobhan's expertise came into play in recreating the best smells of the past. So Siobhan, after that rambling introduction, welcome to Single Malt History. Thank you so much, Gareth. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, Siobhan, to begin with, what is Clio and what is the core idea behind it? So Clio is what we like to say a sensory history company. And so what we do is we offer experiences and a connection to the people of history and and how they experience their world through the senses. Uh, So whether it's one of our candles that recreates the olfactive history of a particular time and place or learning more about the people or places of history through our historian partners like you, Gareth. Uh, We provide an opportunity to experience history in a multi-sensory way. So I would argue one thing that sets us apart from other companies is that we do rely on research to inform our candle formulations. Uh, So looking at primary and secondary sources to understand the specific aromas and fragrances associated with a time and place. And, and so whether it's you know recreating the fragrances of you know Leonardo da Vinci's workshop in Florence or Cleopatra's perfume, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at various sources uh, to stay as close as we can to the historical record when formulating our what I like to say sensory history experiences and candle form. Uh, The final piece that I would like to share or add is, I guess, is that our motto is time travel is possible. And so I like to think that we can provide a journey through history by recreating the aromas and fragrances that people of history experience. So it's, you know, a portal into their world, a way to connect to bygone eras uh, from the comfort of your living room. Well, when we worked on the Catherine Howard candle for it, you try to recreate the kind of perfume that women of Queen Catherine's class and background used in the 1540s. For our listeners, how did you research that? And what are the scents we decided on for that final candle? Yeah, so that this, this was a really fascinating and admittedly challenging subject to tackle. 
Um, so yes, for context, we wanted to create a candle that complemented your incredible biography about Catherine Howard, young and damned and fair. Uh, in addition to creating a really lovely candle, um, which is always our goal, uh, we wanted to offer a multi-sensory complement to your book. So, you know, if, if people read it or listen to it, they can light the candle and feel transported to Catherine's world through the power of scent. And so for the eponymous uh, Catherine Howard candle, I spent a lot of time trying to uncover the fragrances and aromas of Catherine's world. And as part of that effort, I was able to find a book published in 1927 uh, by a British physician, chemist, and historian, which I didn't think that trifecta um, would exist. And But I was pleasantly surprised. Um, and he offered, um, you know, a history of the perfumes and their composition. And, and I would, you know, say it was really neat that he offered it from a chemist's point of view. And so for Catherine, I found a dry perfume that was used by aristocratic Tudor women of the mid to late, late 16th century. And it featured fragrances like orris root, uh, damask roses, benzoin, uh, labdanum, calamus, and musk. And so when I uncovered this formulation, I felt like this would prove to be a really incredible sensory experience that we could recreate in a candle and also offer a wonderful compliment to your book. Well, you know, I love obsessively the final product. How did the candles arrive and what was your thought behind that? Well, that is very kind of you. And I am, of course, <laughs> thrilled to hear it. Um, so yes, if you visit our online store, you will see all of our available candles. Uh, but what you don't see and what I have purposely chosen to omit from our website or any marketing materials are photos of our product boxes or our unboxing experience. And that decision, Gareth, was by design. Um, so in a world, uh, and that sounds a bit like a 90s um, movie trailer, but in a world where <laughs> there are so few surprises, right? So, you know, I really wanted people who purchased a Clio candle to be delighted and wowed when they receive their order. So in a way, I'm trying to <laughs> recreate how people of history experienced receiving a parcel. Uh, you know, so before the age of catalogs or the internet, you know, people did not have an exact idea of how a purchase would be presented when they received it. Um, so I'm afraid I'm going to purposely dodge uh, <laughs> a full and complete answer to this question. But let's just say that at Clio, we're committed to providing an experience that, uh, to borrow a phrase from Marie Kondo, sparks joy <laughs> and um, it is faithful uh, to the history behind the candle. Well, Christmas, our candle Christmas at the Palace was directly inspired by chapter five of my new book, The Palace, focusing on the splendor and scandal of the Tudor's 1540 Christmas at Hampton Court. So the scents that are in this candle are, I think I have this right, peppercorn, sugared plum, sugared plum, black cardamom, Tudor spices, and firewood. It is gorgeous. It's, I think, probably the quickest selection I've ever made during our work together. But for fans of social history, you find out during your research for this candle that quite a few of the smells that we culturally associate with Christmas were different in the Tudor traditions. Yeah, so this this was a really fun and I would argue a surprising olfactive history story to piece together. 
Um, so, you know, I went into this thinking I would find many of the aromas and fragrances that we associate with Christmas. Uh, I just didn't think that there was that much daylight between, you know, modern Christmas and, and the Tudor Christmas. And while there certainly are similarities um, with traditions like mulled wine and holly and mistletoe, which I have learned has actually no discernible fragrance. Um, there are also <laughs> other, you know, there are many things that I would argue are uniquely Tudor. Um, so you're not going to find, you know, peppermint sticks or balsam fir uh, at a, a Tudor Christmas, but you will find things like sugared fruits as part of dessert dishes, you know, spices like cardamom and pepper and, you know, really, you know, rich environmental aromas uh, like the smells of burning wood in a fireplace. Um, so when I saw these various elements um, surfacing in the literature, you know, I thought, hmm, this the combination of these would make for a very interesting and a beautiful candle as part of a tr- Christmas time tradition. Um, so I know we're both biased, Gareth, but I would say we were pretty successful in that goal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes, I am very biased, but yes, I also <laughs> agree. Um, Siobhan, this has been, I mean, I, as you know, find this fascinating, but thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and more about Cleo? Well, it was my pleasure, Gareth. Thank you. And if you are interested in learning more about Clio, I invite you to visit our website at exploreclio.com um, or Google Clio Candles. Uh, we're one of the first, if not the first search result. Um, you'll so you'll not only find our current selection of sensory experiences like the Catherine Howard candle and Christmas at the Palace, um, in which I partnered with Gareth on, but you'll also see links to our social media channels if you're interested in following us following us there. Great, Siobhan, thank you so much. Thank you, Gareth. We are joined today by author Anthony Tucker-Jones, whose book Churchill, Master and Commander, with a foreword by celebrated historian Andrew Roberts, is out now. With the adage that a journey of a million miles begins with a single step, Tucker-Jones' study of Winston Churchill goes back to the beginning of Churchill's extraordinary military career. To ask in what ways it helped shape Churchill's major decisions as Britain's Prime Minister during the dark days of the Second World War. After a career in British intelligence, Anthony is also the author of Hitler's Winter, the German Battle of the Bulge, Slaughter on the Eastern Front, Hitler and Stalin's War, 1941 to 1945, and the Battle for the Mediterranean, Allied and Axis campaigns from North Africa to the Italian Peninsula, 1940 to 1945. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to Single Malt History. Well, thank you, Gareth. Thank you very much for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, to begin, uh, as an expert on the Second World War and military history, what was it, Anthony, that drew you to, to this idea of telling Winston Churchill's life through the prism of his military career? Um, well, I've, I've over the years I've written an embarrassingly large number of books on the on the Second World War, and Churchill's often featured in them um, quite regularly, quite often as a as a sort of major player. You know, you've got all the famous World War II leaders, Roosevelt, you know, Churchill, Stalin, all the generals, Montgomery, Bradley, Eisenhower, the list goes on. So he 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 was always a feature of my books, but he was never the focus. 
Um, so I was quite intrigued, you know, as a military historian, to look at him from that perspective uh, and maybe answer the question of whether really he was the the man for the job in 1940. I mean, he has that very famous walk with destiny uh, remark that he made, you know, about how his entire life seemed to be leading up to that very point in time. And Churchill being a master of spin and, of course, the creator of his own history, I just wondered whether he was saying that with an eye to the future. Um, but actually, in writing the book, I think, you know, he wasn't blowing his own trumpet. He was he was the man most qualified for the job. Um, so what I did was I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of take the reader through his military career and then up through the Second World War. First to see, you know, what indeed qualified him for the job. Um, and then to look at, you know, what sort of job he made and where you can see the influences from his from his early career. And again, one of the things that intrigued me was that when Churchill became prime minister in May 1940, he created this post of defence minister uh, and appointed himself. So he was not only prime minister, he was always also defence minister. Uh, and that informed the title, hence, you know, master and commander, because he was the country's political master and its military commander. And he did this, uh, placed him above uh, Secretary of State of War uh, and indeed all the chiefs of staff. It meant the chiefs of staff direct, answered directly to him, uh, which essentially meant he, you know, he had oversight for the Britain's conduct of the Second World War. So, again, I was intrigued as to whether or not he was actually qualified to do that. Um, obviously, hopefully the reader gets some some insight into whether, <laughs> whether he was or he wasn't. Uh, I mean, he certainly had his ups and downs during the Second World War. But ultimately, I mean, my conclusion was that he, he did do a pretty good job. Well, that, I mean, sort of on the was side of things, uh, Churchill, master and commander, does, I think, highlight brilliantly the ways in which Churchill's early experiences in the war and First World Wars helped prepare him for some of those remarkable and justly famous successes during his time as Prime Minister in the early 1940s. I'm think I mean I'm thinking in particular of the evacuation of Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain. What early experiences do you think helped shape, say, his response around the Dunkirk evacuation? I think, well, foremost, as as hopefully my book shows, Churchill was, you know, an unapologetic imperialist. He was a child of empire. He served in the British Empire's wars overseas, obviously in you know in Sudan and, and India and South Africa. Uh, he'd seen the might of the British armed forces at work, so that that sort of had an influence on on him in terms of his military career. Also, of course, he was a writer and a historian, so he had this sort of deep sense of you know what the British Empire was, what it, its place was in the world. Um, so he certainly wanted to do his utmost to protect it when it when it came to the Second World War. And I think one of the things that really informed his ability and indeed his desire to make difficult uh, decisions was Gallipoli during the First World War. Um, he quite wrongly was held um, to account for the disaster of the, you know, the Allied landings in the Dardanelles, which was supposed to knock Turkey out of the war on the side of um, Germany, um, you know, uh, was going to be a quick fix and it wasn't, it, it was a complete and utter shambles. And Churchill got the blame for that. Which, which actually he was later exonerated by an inquiry. But the thing that Churchill realised was 
part of the problem with uh, the Dardanelles campaign is it had been run by committee. Um, and as a result, the army and the navy had all done very separate things, had not worked, you know, mutually in a sort of coordinated way. And that's what reduced its sort of shambles. So in his mind, he very much knew, and again, this goes back to him appointing himself as defence minister, that uh, it would be up to him to take difficult decisions. But the other thing is during the 1930s, when he was in the political wilderness, I mean, he, he, he you know, he was still an MP, but he hadn't had political office. Because of his views over India, you know, he'd sort of been distanced by the party. He kind of even they recognised that home rule had to happen at some point for India. But during the 1930s, of course, Churchill famously watched the rise of Hitler and Nazi Germany, and, and he, he knew that it was a threat. Um, you know, he was well aware of German rearmament. Um, and also because of the contacts he'd made in the British intelligence services when he hadn't been office, in office, they, they surreptitiously kept him informed. So a lot of his views actually were based on intelligence that, that had been leaked to him. But he, he garnered really during that period that, um, Hitler was not a person that you could trust. You know, like, you know, Hitler said, I just want the Rhineland back and that will be the end of it. You know, he's then, oh, well, I want the Sudetenland back, and then that will be the end of it. Um, you know, the next thing you know, he's taking the, you know, Czechoslovakia, and it just went on and on and on. So I think Churchill knew that he couldn't trust him. Um, and to that extent, I'm firmly of the belief in May 1940 that Churchill had no um, intention whatsoever of negotiating a peace with Hitler. Um, as you may be aware, in recent years, there's been a fair amount of work on whether or not Churchill was ever genuine in his views that we might be able to get ourselves out of out of the war. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean that's. I think that did come across in the book. As I mean, I think his assessment of Hitler emerges from this is that possibly even more shrewd than he's usually given credit for. Because I think he. I mean, he very much. I mean, at one point he sounded like Cassandra, sort of the voice in the wilderness, saying, "This man cannot be trusted." And I think yes, it, I mean I, I don't I don't think he was the only one, but to be no. fair, of course, Churchill was the one that got sort of the doomsayer platform, if you like, you know, because he was he was famous that uh, people tended to listen to him. And also, of course, he'd slightly garnered a reputation as being a warmonger. So they, you know, no. they kept saying, Oh, well, he's he's saying this because he wants British rearmament funded and you know, he, he wants Britain to stand up to to Hitler, which of course at the time um in the nineteen thirties was not fashionable because of course Everyone was completely traumatised by the First World War, did not want another major war in Europe, and therefore obviously had gone down this route of appeasement with Hitler. But of course, you you got to a point when you had to say enough was enough, and I think, you know, Churchill appreciated that. The dilemma, of course, the dilemma of Dunkirk, of course, was it wasn't just a decision to evacuate the British Expeditionary Force, it was a painful political decision to abandon the French, because that's what he did. Yeah. Um, you know, he didn't really have any choice, but, um, you know, he was an ardent supporter of the French, tried his utmost to keep them in the war during the opening stages of the Battle for France, um, but just knew that Britain was going to lose the cream of its manpower if if he did not take that fateful decision. Well, that's sort of, I mean, it sets up quite nicely for this this next question. And I think for listeners, that this is nothing if not an admirably fair book. It really is. And we are used to a version 
of British 20th century history in which Winston Churchill is uniformly heroic, sort of almost a secular patron saint of patriotism. And everybody who had questions about his suitability as a leader at the time is retrospectively presented as adult, a fascist, or a weakling. And in fairness, quite a few of them were all three. But you also point out in this book that some of the contemporary concerns about Churchill's enthusiasm for war, which you've just mentioned, and his extreme confidence in his own capabilities as a strategist, were to some extent justified. These weren't totally unreasonable concerns. And he made some quite serious mistakes early in the war with things like his response to the fall of the kingdoms of Norway and Greece. And even, which I have to say, when I read the book, I was very surprised about at a point when you would have expected him maybe to have to have known a bit better, there were quite serious mistakes later in the war with regards to the 1943 campaigns. From having what you've written, Anthony, what you've researched, what do you think Churchill's greatest mistake was between 1940 and 1945? Well, clearly his greatest successes were, were Dunkirk and, and Battle of Britain because that kept Britain, the Commonwealth and the Empire in, in the fight. But the problem that um, Churchill had was that he he wasn't terribly good at taking advice. He tended to make up his own mind on a course of action and then would insist it, you know, it was followed. Um, and in many ways, he got worse as the war went on. Um, you know, I, I found it quite remarkable. Someone like Stalin, who initially tried to micromanage, you know, the Soviet Union war effort. Uh, and that ended up in unmitigated disaster. So slowly but surely, he, he began to rely on his generals and sort of gave them free reign. Uh, whereas Churchill actually was the opposite. He always kind of seemed to think he knew best, uh, and sometimes he didn't. Um, and also because of this, you know, his idea of empire, he kind of appreciated that Britain had this quite remarkable global reach. But of course, he often indulged in mission creep. So certainly in terms of disasters, one of his fundamental failures in the early part of the war was his decision to help Greece. <clears throat> you know, by, by 1941, the Greeks had already been fighting, um, you know, the Italians who'd invaded Greece from Albania. Um, and there was every indication that Hitler might come to, to Mussolini's aid. Um, and of course, at that crucial moment, um, after Mussolini had declared war on Britain and sided with Germany, he'd attacked Egypt. So, you know, from uh, Italian Libya, he, he launched this offensive against uh, the Egyptians and, and the British. Um, and it, fortunately for us, it didn't get very far. But the British generals there launched this remarkable uh, counterattack, a thing that called called Operation Compass, which ended up not only rolling the Italians out of um, Egypt, but also most of eastern Libya. Britain was on the cusp, actually, of knocking the Italians out of the war in North Africa, which would have been quite a major achievement. If they'd rolled on to Tripoli, that would have cut the Italians off from mainland Italy uh, and, and could have sealed the deal for Britain. But at that crucial moment, having rolled the Italians back, uh, Churchill insisted that we divert troops from North Africa to help the Greeks, uh, which of course did no good. Uh, Athens was still taken by Hitler, uh, and we were unceremoniously booted out of Greece, you know, yet another Dunkirk. 
uh, and we withdrew our forces to Crete, which, of course, again, was a mistake because that stimulated Hitler's attack on Crete. Yet another Dunkirk, so we rolled out of that. So that his, I think maybe his decision was in part influenced by, or certainly Anthony Eden, uh, who's the foreign minister, who you know, given the Greeks a pledge that we would help. But both Churchill and Eden, of course, had in the backs of their minds that you know Britain had pledged itself to help Poland and didn't. And I think Churchill and Eden just simply felt that you know. Britain couldn't abandon another ally in its hour of need, so it committed resources that it could not spare. Um, and of course, while we were being thrown out of Greece, Rommel turns up in Tripoli with the Africa Corps uh, and proceeds to roll the British armed forces out of Libya and back into Egypt. So it it that key decision on helping Greece prolonged the war in North Africa quite considerably. What? Overall, then, is the impression of, of the Winston Churchill? You I mean you said you sort of, you sort of started the book with the idea of, of investigating how much of the sometimes self-created legend of, of Churchill uh, is sustainable. Having re- researched and written this book about his career, what is the impression of the Winston Churchill you came to know? Um, you know, I like the man, or I wouldn't have spent any two years writing a book on him. Um, you know, he was no saint. He had his flaws, but we all do. I mean, you know, he was only human. But what I came away from him with was this this remarkable sense of respect for his his zest for life, his energy. When you look at what he achieved in his lifetime, you know, I, I've written an embarrassingly large number of books. But even I was, was thinking, you know, what have I been doing with my time compared to what Churchill achieved? You know, the man was a... <laughs> A soldier, a journalist, a, an author, you know, a politician, a painter, uh, even a bricklayer. You know, so he, he crammed in an awful lot in his lifetime, which 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 was quite good. And I, as you touched on earlier, one of the things I was keen to do was make the book balanced. You know, uh, hopefully you got from it. It, it, it isn't hero worship. I mean, I I like him. Um, you know, I wouldn't deny it, but. I felt it was important, A, that the book's a good read. I mean, that's always foremost in my mind when I write a book that, you know, I wanted to take the reader on a journey. But I kind of wanted them to understand why Churchill acted as he did and what decisions he made. And again, you know, as you, you touched on earlier, he's come in for an awful lot of flack in recent years. You know, people have branded him a racist and an imperialist. Uh, you know, they blame him for the Bengal famine. Uh, you know, they blame him for Ireland. You know, they blame him for all sorts of things. And and you have to go, well, you have to put his attitudes in context of the time. And the other thing is, of course, he's, he wasn't solely the person responsible for all these things. Again, it's because it, it's the Churchill legend. He ends up carrying the can for a lot of things when they're not really his fault. Um, you know, it's like during the Second World War and his treatment of India. You have to go, well, there was a commander-in-chief in India there was a viceroy, uh, there was a secretary of state for India. So there were all these other politicians involved. It's always Churchill that's, you know, like with the Bengal famine, Churchill gets the blame for that, which you have to say, well, there was a war on. There were Japanese aircraft carriers and submarines lurking in the Bay of Bengal. Um, there have been a poor harvest. Um, you know, there have been these accidents in various Indian ports, which had delayed imports. So there were lots of lots of factors. You know, it wasn't just that, Churchill was callous and wouldn't help Bengal. I mean, that completely wasn't true, but that's that sort of narrative that's grown up. And it's the same with Ireland. You know, he's held responsible for the black and tans, the 
the militia yeah. that was sent sent to Ireland. And you have to go, well, he was Secretary of State for war at the time. You know, he, he wasn't Secretary of State. Pretty much all he did was authorise the recruitment of First of all, veterans to be recruited into this sort of paramilitary police force. Now, common sense would dictate, particularly in what we know these days about PTSD, you know, um, that maybe recruiting people from the trenches as policemen was not a good idea, which, as of course, it transpired wasn't. But yeah, but you know, Churchill is sort of held up for all Ireland's woes, which is completely not true. Um, you know, he, he did support Home Rule. Um, yeah, he did very strongly. Now, he, he championed partition simply because Churchill viewed India very much, India and Ireland very much in the same colour in, in, in that they, they had this underlying history, history of, um, sectarian animosity. You know, Churchill always thought Britain was a force for good in India because it kept, um, the Muslim and the Hindu population. Yeah. They had a common enemy, the British. If you took that away, then they were going to set about each other. And Churchill very much viewed Ireland in the same way with the, you know, the Protestants in the north and the Catholics in the south. But when everyone kept saying independence and home rule, it wasn't as clear cut as you just simply saying, you know, the British will withdraw from all of Ireland because it 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 was never possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is it's that in the particularly, I mean, the complexity of his attitude and policy towards Ireland, I don't think gets a lot of attention and credit your most recent book to move uh to to your other as you said you said embarrassingly uh large number of books <laughs> say pleasingly uh your most recent book hitler's winter has been described as superb timely and important and a must read by other military historians what drew you to the story of the the battle of the bulge and telling it from from that perspective um well, like most historians, I'm I'm fascinated with the with the Battle of the Bulge because it's one of those big what ifs, you know, what if Hitler had pulled off capturing Antwerp? Um, so I was sort of inspired by, you know, in the cold light of day and with the benefit of hindsight, you just go, well, it's a complete amount of waste of resources. He shouldn't have done it. He should have deployed his troops on the Rhine and the Oder uh, to defend Germany. But he but he he wanted this grand military gesture at the end of the war. So I was intrigued to know whether or not his commanders agreed with him. Now, of course, in all the post-war debriefs that his senior generals did, um, they all kept saying, oh, no, we said it wouldn't work. We warned him he wouldn't listen. And you kind of think, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? You know, because after the war had ended, they were all out to protect their own reputations as military commanders. But the more I researched the book, I actually realised Hitler pretty much was the only one that wanted Operation Watch on the Rhine to take place, that they'd... You know, one of the things that they did after the collapse in Normandy, they German industry under Albert Speer had, had churned out all these weapons and they'd miraculously rearmed um, all their armies. You know, they created two panzer armies in the West. Um, and they were almost sort of, you know, burning burning a hole in, in Hitler's pocket in that he felt he needed to use them. Whereas, of course, his commanders were more of a view they'd be better off as a mobile counterattack force. Once the, the Russians and the, the Western Allies began to press on Germany's borders, but he he just thought that if he took Antwerp, deny the Allies the port because they didn't get in it till September. If you think the Battle of the Bulge took place in December, December, they'd not had it for very long. So I think he felt if he could do that, it would slow down their resupply. And also he got it into his mind the Allies would fall out. You know that 
he could drive a wedge between the British and the Americans, and and that would slow up the war in the West. And also, he clung to this notion that maybe he could get a separate peace with Britain and America, uh, and if that happened, he could then turn his reinvigorated armies east to fight the Russians. Uh, but of course, um, you know, the alliance of Britain, America, and and Russia, they they had agreed it was unconditional surrender or nothing. Um, so Hitler was not going to get separate arrangements, but he he clung to that belief that um, that might happen. It is extraordinary Hitler's. I mean, increase. I mean, his capacity for self delusion is really. I mean, no matter how many times you hear it, it is quite breathtaking. Hitler thought he knew best, but 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 his micromanagement of the war. Again, as the war progressed, simply got worse and worse and worse. And for Hitler, what he was trying to do was recapture the glory days of the of the Blitzkrieg in 1940 and 41, you know, which had given Germany these absolutely remarkable victories. You know, half half of Europe, um, you know, huge swathes in the Soviet Union, Poland, and Norway. You know, the list goes on. Uh, and and Hitler just kind of convinced himself if we just get the combination right that they they could they could Look achieve that that. That again, but of course, certainly by 1944-45, his armies were not facing the same sort of armies that they had in the early part of the war. Uh, Anthony's critically acclaimed book, Churchill, Master and Commander, is out now, and you can find out more uh, about Anthony's previous and forthcoming projects on his website, a Tucker Jones, all lowercase, all one word, dot com. Anthony, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm.